Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. That is the first time I almost said the name of my former co-host from months ago, (laughs) just for one second. I didn't even have to make any of you aware of it, but that's the kind of honest and open person I am. Now, I'm here, of course, with John Kiriakou. We're still going against the grain for the next couple of hours. And as we were just saying, there's a lot of stuff to talk about and like some of it's fun. Yeah, some of it is kind of there's fun. a lot of great stuff. Some today. of it is quite sad and bad. Yes, but <laughs> we're know. not going to get all bogged down in Ukraine today like we've been for the last couple of months. No. Well, we're going to send some bit. time. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. No, we do. We are going to have EU sanctions, you know, proposed on Russia coming up. We have Russia's, uh, you know, Russia developing a list of counter sanctions or other reactions. We are going to talk about an important defamation lawsuit that doesn't involve Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. For Which we also wonder. haven't talked about. No, we haven't. I have. I, I think I have said on the show. I've deliberately learned nothing about it. I have only the vaguest <laughs> sense of what's going on. I could sort of pick a vague side if you force me to. Yep. But very happy to listen to someone explain it to me, as long as I don't have to take it in through my own eyeballs. You know, I need to save them yes. for other things. We're going to talk about Dave Chappelle getting attacked at a performance yeah. uh, in things that are not good. We are going to talk to the head of a media organization, uh, another media organization in battle with PayPal right now. Going to talk about the Pope, Pope Francis, spreading wild conspiracy theories like war is good for arms dealers. Right. Crazy He's going to have to be banned from Twitter now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, We are going to ask how likely it is that we will actually get a new Iran nuclear agreement since, uh, you know, all coverage of those discussions and the discussions themselves, to be honest, just sort of disappeared uh, a month or so ago. Yeah, they truly did. We are going to talk about millions of Americans being subjected to warrantless searches of their electronic communications. We're going to talk about primary results. And really, I mean, top line lesson from J.D. Vance's big turnaround. I think it is that maybe Trump has uh, some more power that he than he has appeared to. Yes. Also, just never be afraid to change almost all of your opinions and grovel to whoever is the latest kingmaker. That is the lesson from J.D. Vance. Never be afraid. And also because those people, the kingmakers, will care far less about sort of authenticity. Absolutely. Right. And they will, you know, the the. Uh, hitting just the right craven tone of groveling. You know, he once described himself as a never Trumper, not just that he, you know, didn't express support or interest in Donald Trump. He was a never Trumper. Never say never. Never say (laughs) never never is right. uh, You know, there was a piece in the the New York Post today saying that, uh, hey, why is nobody talking about Joe Biden's vote um, against Roe v. Wade in the U.S. Senate? When he said men have rights, too. And if the man doesn't want the woman to have an abortion, his opinion should count for something. Why are we not talking about that? I mean, everybody gets to change his mind. I it suppose. is true, though. I mean, about people should, you know, I, I don't think there's any virtue necessarily in holding on to the same opinions for 30 years. If you have I good agree. reasons to, you know, and that's why evolution I always say, is good, change is good, progress yeah. is, is good. And, and when when the situation Vance, changes or the facts change, uh-huh. then we should change our opinions. But you're right about Vance. It remains you're right about Vance. suspicious of Vance. Oh, he just got on his knees. But hey, he did. Begged. He did prove a lot of people wrong. I also want to talk because we're not going to get into this later. I have to talk about yet another uh, article about Dianne Feinstein. Yes. And so I think the first one was in Politico. 
last year. That's right. Second one was the San Francisco Chronicle. The New York Times is getting in on it now, and I am pretty mad about some of the issues raised in here. Not even so much about Feinstein herself, but about uh, the way her the way the impact of her apparent um, mental incapacity, growing incapacity, uh, the way those impacts are prioritized, because I think they're all wrong here. And it starts with a headline, right? The headline of this piece is, as Feinstein declines, Democrats struggle to manage an open secret. Again, how about struggling to get a competent person into her seat? Exactly. And again, you know, Politico is uh, credited with, blamed for the sort of dissent of political reporting into just full on personality reporting and and palace intrigue. This is the Times, right? The Times is supposed to have other things on its mind. And yet inside the story, you really do find very little about how Feinstein is doing her job. You get defenses of her performance from her and her team, her tiny band of insiders, and that is it. There's nobody else. But they're offering lots of reasons why Feinstein uh, shouldn't have to step down. You Here's know, another. Let me just tell you one yeah. more. This is like the, you know, the not the uh, the lead, but sort of the the I forget what they call it. Subhead, but not the subhead. Democrats have quietly accepted the California senator's memory issues as the status quo, even as her inner circle frets that the spectacle of her difficulties on the job could tarnish her legacy. Again, I feel like, John, I feel like there are more important things to fret about. Yeah, you could say that again. Than her legacy. I mean, she she represents 40 million people of California. I would maybe be fretting about uh, just how uh, enfranchised they are. If the person who is representing them is unable to remember the names of her colleagues or remember conversations that she had just hours ago. Or not remember which way she's supposed to vote on legislation. Yeah. I mean, what about their dignity? You know, but this is all about the the, the well-being of this individual, incredibly rich, old person who apparently has a giant ego that everyone's afraid to puncture. And so here, look, this is sourced by, according to The Times, six lawmakers and aides. Right. Uh, They confirmed to the Times that Feinstein, who is 88, forgets the names of her colleagues, frequently has little recollection of meetings or telephone conversations and at time walks around in a state of befuddlement. That's just sad. In addition to being absolutely outrageous. And yet here are the defenses that Feinstein's supporters offer. Here's this one. This is particularly gross. Um, Her staying in office helped the party. Feinstein supporters argue she did her party a favor by staying. The decision meant that Democrats avoided an expensive open seat race in California. So California's Democratic donors could focus on helping other candidates across the country. This is according to her most recent campaign manager. Again, if you are weighing the interests of the Democratic Party against those of the people she is supposed to serve, whose needs should be on top? And I'm not an idiot, right? I understand that these, you know, organizations eventually simply start to exist to uh, maintain their own existence and forget all other responsibilities. But that's not how it should be. And I think The New York Times should be questioning this. I agree with you. The I o- agree with you. Yeah. The other uh, defenses are basically what else is she supposed to do? And it quotes her husband, uh, financier and mega donor Richard Bloom. Uh, who, surprise, surprise, wanted his wife to stay in office, surely not because it's great for his business and great for his contacts and great for their bottom line. Uh, He up until he died last year. 
Uh, up until his death, he was saying she'd probably run in 2024. And the Times here says when people would bring up questions about Ms. Feinstein's ability to continue serving, he would shrug them off and say, what else is she going to do? Not our problem. Sorry. Again, this is treated like it's adult daycare. Yeah. And this right. is the same as, you know, uh, last year uh, before when um, Joe Biden was appointing his cabinet. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, all the discussion was where's where's Pete Buttigieg going to go again? It's all it, all of it was treated as not. Do you have do you have the skills and competencies uh, to excel in this particular position? No, this is like the presidential internship. Right. Yes. So who cares if you are actually good at doing that mm -hmm. job or could mm -hmm. uh, affect anything meaningful in that job? We'll just put you here to uh, to learn how to be president and keep you in the public eye because we have as a party have already decided regardless of what the people want you're going to be our next guy in four years in eight years or whatever it's just and again i'm not naive it's not like this is a surprise to me but what is i think surprising and what the time should be ashamed of is that they in this story they do not really ask these questions they just treat this as you know the way politics is is supposed to be yes the final uh defense here is that well men do it so women should do it, too. Right. And Which is the worst. It's the weakest of all of their defenses. Yeah, this is just as basic as so she. So she's going to be compared now with Strom Thurmond. Of course. Yeah. Who was completely demented, lasted in the U.S. Senate until he was 100 years old, mm -hmm. pulling sandwiches out of his pocket and eating them in in committee hearings, because even though he was chairing the meeting, yeah. he couldn't remember why he was there. So it must be lunchtime. Always so he just pulled a sandwich somewhere. out of That's his pocket. That's what they say. No, yeah. it's embarrassing. That is just as look, two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, it's it's as simple as that. Men shouldn't yeah. be doing it either. No. And that should be called out, too. But Diane Feinstein's the one who is doing it now. And it is bad. And, and it's know, just and if I could make another point to uh, going back to something that Richard Bloom said, um, or maybe it wasn't Richard Bloom. It was the campaign manager that, well, you know, in 2018, this was money that could have been spent on or that that ended up being spent on other races. But 2018 was a midterm election. So now she's so demented that she just can't possibly run for reelection again in 2024, even though her husband said she was going to run in 2024. Well, guess what? 2024 is a presidential campaign year. Yeah. And so now the the billion dollars that's going to be spent in that Senate race could have been spent during a presidential year to bring out Democratic voters. Now it's going to be wasted in California on a primary. She should have left in 2018. Yeah. That's what would have been good for the Democratic I'm Party. It's like the, the, the gall to say, hey, California, it's too, too expensive to try and get you a competent representative. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have finger this to 40 case. million people. Yeah. Because, hey, we wanted to hey, we wanted to take money that's supposed to be in California for your state to spend it on other states right. to better. The, I mean, just outrageous. And yeah, so, you know, it, it's rude. It's rude to ask her to step down. That's basically what Nancy Pelosi said. And again, this is our lives, right? This is our well-being, our ability to affect policy through our elected representatives. But all of this should be subordinate to the, uh, you know, emotional state of one extremely wealthy, extremely vain, yes. uh, clearly rotten to the core old woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, just uh, just a travesty. Uh, good news, though. NFTs are collapsing. Yeah, I'm <laughs> glad about that. This is the other story. Well, NFTs are collapsing, according to the Wall Street Journal. And so I got a little kick. This is a big feature 
piece, you know, big illustration on one side. They put a lot of effort into it. Um, NFT, the NFT market is collapsing. That was the lead paragraph. So Washington, Wall Street Journal pulling no punches here. Um, and they note that the sale of NFTs fell to a daily average of about 19,000 this week, which was a 92% decline from its peak in September. <laughs> the number of active wallets in the NFT market fell 88%. Uh, and you know they they were setting highs in November. They note that the, they note that sort of tech has fallen across the board. Bitcoin values have fallen. Many NFT owners are finding their investments are worth significantly less than when they bought them. As with the story that you referenced this morning about that fellow whose name I've. I, I is lost to the mists of time right. but who bought Jack Dorsey's first <laughs> right. Jack Dorsey's first tweet I believe <laughs> tried to sell it didn't he tried to sell it for a couple million dollars didn't get an offer greater than 14,000 <laughs> um oh yeah here it is Cena Estavi uh yeah Mr. Estavi who tried to sell this tweet for many million dollars uh said the failure of the auction wasn't a sign that the market is deteriorating it's a normal fluctuation John mm -hmm. it could occur in any any listen any market could just lose 92% of its yeah. value over a couple of months and right. then rebound which hey well, you know what well that's not a market i want to be invested I in mean, then maybe this could happen i i maybe this is normal and this happens all the time it probably does happen with cryptocurrencies all the time but in that that case also you're talking about values that are small yes. you know what i mean yeah buy a cryptocurrency right. it's worth like five cents uh three months later it's worth ten dollars i mean that's a huge that's, that is a huge fluctuation but the actual dollar amounts are really tiny this is you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars people were spending on these things yes and then collapsing see now, i never i never understood the fact that people would want to buy something or invest in something that wasn't tangible mm -hmm. you couldn't touch it you couldn't control it and yeah. all it is is to be worth money, right? It's not like yeah, that people are, oh, right. tulips, whatever. At least a no. tulip is a thing you can hold in your hand yeah, and plant you in your garden at, exactly. and look at it, and it will genuinely bring you joy. Please That's do right. not attempt to tell me that bo looking at bored apes no. brings anyone no. anything other than re repulsion. Nope. Yeah. Totally agree. So uh, it, it does bear pointing out that others are challenging this analysis. Uh, Cointelegraph, uh, which is a, a tech media a uh, covering organization mm -hmm. and others are saying that the data the Wall Street Journal used was incomplete and data from other sources shows a robust market with way more users and way more transactions and everything's fine, which is, you know, maybe what they would say. Uh, we will we will just see. And I, I know we have to go to a break here and bring on our next guest, but uh, probably shouldn't forget the Federal Reserve meeting again today. Yeah. Uh, unless, you know, the sky falls, they should be announcing another interest rate rate hike. Half a point this time. Half Huge. a point this time. Uh, probably, you know, going to hike them again next month. Yeah. I think at the beginning of the year they were planning six. Uh, so, you know, goodbye. Goodbye I, mortgage for I, anyone who was hoping right. they could buy a house I, this year. I don't year. see how this doesn't push us into a recession. I mean, and maybe that's the point. Yeah, I don't know. Right? Maybe the only way that can save us from... From inflation is recession, but man, this is going to hurt people. I don't know who, what guest we had who was saying they're always, you know, they say they're trying for a soft landing, but it never actually happens. And maybe it that's isn't right. actually possible if these are the mechanisms you're using. That's right. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, that's that's how it's going to affect me personally is sort of bye bye. Yeah, me too. Bye bye the possibility of a mortgage. I can't um, I can't buy it. Which well, is really sad. A place in this economy. It's really sad to feel at, at the whim of uh you know Indeed. these these very big decisions and these very very big forces that you can't do anything mm -hmm. about 
Well, that was gloomy. But let's all remember that NFTs are losing value. Buoy our spirits for this next <laughs> this next That's conversation. Right. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Political Misfits <laughs> on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, starting in Europe, where the EU is unveiling its new sanctions proposal on Russia. It, of course, remains to be seen how many of these measures will actually make it through negotiations, Mm -hmm. right? This is the beginning of a process. We also have Russia preparing its own sanctions package, which could reportedly include canceling existing contracts and cutting off exports to some countries and, you know, probably what you can describe as tit for tat moves. Uh, We have Pope Francis being branded as a peddler of conspiracies for saying (laughs) such outlandish things as the war in Ukraine is good for arms dealers and maybe NATO barking at Russia's door was a factor in unleashing this conflict. So insane positions to discuss there. And we have the Washington Post parachuting into Ukraine to weigh in on the politics of individual Ukrainian villagers and a story that really like rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm trying to put my finger on exactly why. We will see if our guest can help explain it to us. We're joined now by Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and the author of several books on U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Let's start with these uh, new proposed EU sanctions, which uh, include completely ending purchases of Russian oil in six months and refined products by the end of the year, which is not not that big a difference in time. I don't Mm -hmm. know if they mean after a year from now, but the end of the year was how it was put. So we'll see. They also propose phasing out coal and shutting major Russian banks spare bank out of the SWIFT payment system. And so... A lot is being made of the possibility that Europe could completely stop buying Russian oil. And I have two questions for you about this, Jeremy. The first is really just how likely you think it is that the EU will get some agreement on these issues, uh, especially with some countries saying, look, we we really need to secure new supplies before we can make any promises on this. But the other question is. How much this move in particular will hurt Russia and in what time frame? Because I don't know if you can just assume that if the EU doesn't buy this oil, no one will. Well, first, yeah, on, on the first question, um, I mean, Hungary and Slovakia said they go, they won't go along with the boycott. Uh, and other countries, yeah, I mean, the, the public may not want that. You know, we, we may see a uh, uh, backlash, you know, with oil prices are rising and this could, uh, you know, contribute to a continued hardship uh, for European customers. So uh, they may not want that. Uh, and, you know, uh, what we've seen so far is that actually Russian earnings, uh, uh what I found the statistic that Russian monthly earnings have actually increased in the last months from oil. And yeah, I think the boycott's only for oil for natural gas. So this may not actually hurt the Russian economy. And they seem to be doing well, actually, because the oil prices are rising and they still have numbers of countries that are buying oil uh, and many are buying gas from them. And their revenues yeah, actually seem to have been increased uh, in the last year. So they're not feeling any pain uh right now and they may not uh, because yeah, and as you suggest even if certain countries 
uh, don't buy it, you know, may affect those countries the most. And there are other purchasers. Uh, I think the OPEC cartel announced that they're not going to be increasing oil output. Uh, and there are, you know, Asian customers, uh, one, uh, read, you know, several articles on this and one was saying that Asian customers might jump, uh, at the opportunity to sn uh, snap up Russian oil. Uh, so, uh, the Russian economy, uh, doesn't, you know, in general, I think these sanctions are not having, uh, I mean, I think the sanctions were a political maneuver to try and facilitate regime change in Russia, uh, by weakening, you know, the Russian economy and the Russians with would want to, you know, remove the Putin government, uh, but this strategy doesn't seem to be working, and That's, the Putin's popularity ratings are actually higher than before the war. That sort of answers my next question, or or, or it might, because my I was going to ask, you know, is is focusing on these energy exports actually the best way to? Uh, weaken the Russian economy. Uh, you know, uh, at our meeting this morning, you know, we were discussing uh, there are some other industries within Russia that would actually be pretty easy to completely take down uh, by banning, you know, blocking Russia from importing certain different key aspects of them. And I wonder if, you know, if the focus on energy is specifically because of the, I guess, the, the human beings who were behind the energy trade, right? Trying to hit hit them in particular, as you say, to to soften them up for regime change. I'm just wondering if it's if this is backfiring, why is energy still such a focus instead of, you know, some other industries that are actually more vulnerable? Well, some of it may be pure uh, self-interest. The U.S., because of the fracking revolution, has become, uh, I think, the world number one exporter uh, of oil and gas. So they see, you know, oil, U.S. oil and gas producers see great opportunity in expanding the European market if the Russians are cut out. And as we know, you know, the oil and gas industry has huge lobbying clout in the U.S. government. Uh, so a huge influence over major, you know, many politicians, uh, certainly in my state of Oklahoma. So I think you have to look at that aspect. Mm -hmm. There's really an element of self-interest and greed at play here. And they're actually willing to harm, uh, potentially U.S. And, and European citizens and create more hardship for them just, uh, uh, to bolster their own profits. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think I there's think a lot of that at play. I think it's, yeah. You know, the sanctions. Uh, in general, have not worked. You know, I, I've studied this, and uh, Russia has become more self-sufficient. You know, they they imposed since 2012, the U.S. government and other governments under the Magnitsky Act has imposed tons of sanctions on Russia, and it's led the Russian government under uh, Putin's leadership to become more self-sufficient, to develop, you know, to use import substitution and to develop their own internal industries and to expand their trade in the Central Asian region and particularly with China. And so Russia, I think, feels very confident that its economy is booming in conjunction with that of China, and they need the West less and less. And they're even forming, you know, with a SWIFT, uh, the cutoff of the SWIFT financial system, they've developed technologies and a system uh, for dealing with, with the Chinese and communicating with Chinese and moving uh, ultimately toward alternative uh, currency. So... Uh, Russia's, um, you know, been very uh, a lot of ingenuity in dealing with these sanctions, and they're simply not working. The uh, political formula, and people in the U.S. should be attuned to that because it's it's a it's it's a waste of our uh, energy and, and and resources. Let me ask you briefly about uh, the possibility of cutting Sparebank off from SWIFT because you know before the invasion. 
that was really treated as sort of the nuclear option of sanctions. And now it's sort of it feels a little bit like an afterthought. And I wonder how much you think that would really matter and how likely it is to come to pass. Well, a foreign policy magazine had an article uh, that you know pointed to a new global economic realignment that's accelerated by these uh, initiatives to cut off you know the Russian banks uh, from the you know broader uh, uh, economic system you know led by the United States, and you know both China and Russia have launched their own systems. Uh, and they're in communication with each other, and then they've been coordinated since around 2017. I think this started in Russia after the Maidan coup and the Russian, you know, when Russia retook Crimea and there were heavy sanctions imposed. Uh, they started to develop their own financial message uh, transfer system and again link this with the Chinese system. And this is actually accelerating Washington's worst nightmare, a global economic realignment, and pushing Russia very close with China into the two of them together, an economic powerhouse that could, uh, again, uh, overturn the U.S.-dominated economic order that's prevailed since the 90s or since World War II, especially. I also want to talk about this sanctions package that Russia has apparently begun preparing the directive yesterday was to come up with a list of entities to sanction in response to unfriendly actions that contradict international law undertaken by the U.S. and other foreign states and international organizations. I'm wondering if you have any guesses as to who we will see on this list. And also, you know, I'm wondering if if there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, what the West is doing and can do to assist Ukraine that wouldn't trigger a, a reaction from Russia or an escalation of the conflict. Is there something that Russia could do that might risk an escalation? I mean, economically, right? Or or is there less to worry about? I'm wondering if that is as fine a line for, for the Kremlin as for Washington. Uh, I'm not certain of that. I mean, I think a lot of the Russian sanctions in the past have been symbolic. I know they were targeting U.S. congressmen. Uh, actually, I heard a talk by one of the – there were only three U.S. congressmen to oppose the uh, huge aid package. And I think even he may have been sanctioned because a lot of the – a huge number of the members of, of Congress were, were a target of these sanctions by Russia in retaliation for Western sanctions. But uh, from what I've uh, – you know, researched on this topic, they haven't had a huge impact yet. They may be more symbolic. And again, you know, Russia is establishing kind of uh, alternative, you know, trade partners and ways to overcome the uh, U.S. imposed sanctions. Uh, and I mean, yeah, there are, I mean, I think there are, uh, you know, uh, economic um, interests in the United States that are against the sanctions if they're being targeted. Uh, and there are certain, you know, I think even U.S. oil interests who see great opportunity in Russia and they're not really supportive of the new Cold War strategy at all. And they may be impacted uh, by these uh, sanctions. So um, and I, I can't remember what was the second part of your question. I was just, you know, I'm wondering if there was if there is a sort of nuclear option on the Kremlin side you know, and whether there is anything they could do economically to respond that might actually uh, risk uh, an escalation uh, from the West? Well, I, I think the West, uh, in this case, the U.S. and West want an ex escalation. They, they started from the beginning. You know, I think the Putin government, I mean, if you if you take a longer view, mm -hmm. the Putin government was friendly toward the United States. And, you know, after 9-11, he was the first to call 
George uh, W. Bush, uh, offer condolences. Uh, I think you know Russia, you know the the U.S. and, and uh, other interests have wanted this Cold War uh, for their own reasons. Some of it is the uh, you know influence of the arms lobby uh, in the United States and so-called military-industrial complex, the uh, imperial uh, strategy to dominate and control Central Asia, and the view of you know Putin as a barrier because he's more of a nationalistic leader. So. And these things have you know, nothing to do with Russian policy. The U.S. has kind of backed Russia into a corner. I mean, they were the one to uh, intervene in Ukraine in a heavy-handed way to support the coup in Ukraine, to train Ukrainian security forces. Uh, they carried out uh, terror, what they called anti-terrorist activity in eastern Ukraine, uh, but really state terrorist activity. Uh, so, I mean, the U.S. wanted this war. They, they want regime change. That's been their strategy. You know, Biden was very clear about this. He, he made statements that showed he wants regime change. Others, I think Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary, said we want to weaken Russia mm-hmm. because they want a, a patsy like Boris Yeltsin mm-hmm. who uh, they could control. You know, Putin is more of a nationalist enacting policy than Russia interests and standing up to, you know, the unipolar or you know, causing a shift from a unipolar to a multipolar world order. And that's what the U.S. unfortunately can't accept. And they're pumping in weaponry in Ukraine to prolong this conflict and increase the suffering of of the Ukrainian people. Mm -hmm. Let me talk uh, also about Pope Francis on some of these very issues. Uh, And really, I want to talk about the reaction to his words because it is wild. Um, Pope Francis spoke to an Italian newspaper yesterday and the Daily Beast reported on their conversation under the category conspiracy theory. And I want to uh, tell you, for, for the sake of listeners, some of the atrocious conspiracies that the Pope voiced. Uh, In trying to consider the roots of this conflict in Ukraine, Pope Francis said uh, maybe NATO barking at Russia's gate might have been a factor. He also suggested that possibly Putin's actions were maybe facilitated by the West's attitude. Uh, Absolutely insane, right? He pointed to other conflicts as well uh, as part of this illustration. He said Syria, Yemen, Iraq, in Africa, a string of conflicts one after the other. And in each and every one of them, there are international interests at stake. It's unthinkable that a free state can unleash a war against another free state. In Ukraine, the conflict was triggered by other actors. He even said the Ukrainians can't be blamed for having fought back in the Donbass. We are talking of 10 years ago. It's an old argument. And so I wanted to ask just one. What do you think of the Pope's foreign affairs analysis? And what do you make of a U.S. media outlet that labels these kinds of observations conspiracy theory? Well, yeah, I think this is a very good pope, and I think his views are very sensible, and I, I think he's a man of peace. You know, if people would listen to him, we could end this conflict. Uh, we can see how the West has helped to provoke it, and, and certain policies are deeply misguided, like NATO expansion. So it's it's really a, a shameful and a tragedy that he's being, uh, uh, you know, spoken of negatively when he's an honorable person. And I think we've seen this in the media for years now where, you know, sensible people or people who favor you know, peace and ending these conflicts, more peaceful world order, are smeared uh, with different labels, whether it's Putin apologists, Assad apologists, uh, or conspiracy theorists. And, you know, conspiracy theory, that term was invented by the CIA to try and denigrate researchers who exposed that, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was not the lone assassin. 
and it's used in a negative way. Um, I think for you know po- political reasons, and there are you know many conspiracies in history, so uh, to unearth them is is a good thing. And in this case, yeah, it, it, the label doesn't apply. Again, he's making very sensible and good comments, and he's somebody who wants to see peace in, in his lifetime. So we, uh, I respect him for that. I also want to touch on uh, the Pope's observations about the proliferation of weapons. Uh, you know, he, he said, look, I don't know if it's the right thing to supply Ukrainian fighters or not. But what seems indisputable is that in that country, both sides are trying out new weapons. The Russians have just found out that tanks are useless and they might be developing new weapons. Wars are fought for this reason to test your arsenals. This is what happened in the Spanish Civil War before the Second Civil War. The production and sale of armaments is a disgrace, but few are bold enough to stand up against it. And he said, look, this war is it's a gift to arms dealers. The Daily Beast again was angry at this assertion and, uh, you know, had a had a. an angry paragraph following it saying the Pope didn't ask about what would happen if Ukrainians weren't being armed and weren't fighting back. But I wonder, you know, I wonder what you think the result of this conflict uh, will be for the world's weapons makers. I mean, we can see that already starting now. And what you would predict for the region that is sort of on the receiving end of their largesse right now. Well, yeah, again, it's shameful. And that's why these media have lost credibility among large sectors of the American public, uh, because uh, they smear people who speak, you know, speak truth to power, as they say. And yeah, it's been a, a huge boon for the arms industry, as if they weren't doing well before. Right. You know, Biden had already passed a record military budget over Trump. You know, he increased Trump's budget. Uh, Trump's budget was already, I think, record levels peacetime since uh, world well, peacetime since world war ii not really peace but uh, you know no major you know, war going on uh, and then you know because of the ukraine conflict he's passed these emergency uh, uh military aid uh, you know measures and packages that have been supported almost unanimously by every member of congress including you know with a, a small number of dissenters and almost every member of the democratic party including the so-called progressive caucus are all supporting uh, these huge uh, arms packages, and these are supposed to be people who champion things like free health care and education, but that's just going to win. All the money's going into the weapons makers, and you know this is happening in numerous countries. You know, Canada, I know, has uh, passed measures to increase their. I mean, already can, the Canadian military budget, I followed this, was going way up under you know, Harper and Trudeau from what used to be. You know, Canada uh, historically was less, much less militaristic, certainly than the United States. If you look at their military budget, it's gone up a lot in recent years and uh, going up further. And they, they're very uh, hawkish on Ukraine within the Trudeau government. So they're ramping up military spending. If you look in Europe, the same thing. And that has terrible costs. You know, what Eisenhower said, every dollar that's spent on weapons is a dollar from feeding a hungry child, from educating a student, uh, from providing free health care, free housing. So it's it's calamitous, and it's uh, most calamitous for the American, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian people, mm-hmm. because their country being torn to shreds, and the the armed bonanza is giving confidence to the Zelensky government not to negotiate a diplomatic settlement along the line of the Minsk agreements, uh, and actually that government is assassinating people who want to negotiate mayors of local cities, which is a, a disgrace. 
So, and the people of Ukraine, as we know, are suffering tremendously. The people of Eastern Ukraine suffered for years. You know, Raytheon, these companies were selling the Javelin anti-tank missiles uh, and, and, and weapons that were shelling Eastern Ukraine for the last eight years. They had to live in underground caves. At least 13,000 were killed. So it's, it's horrific suffering. And it's, it's sad that, that uh, we have this situation and there, there should be a movement of organized opposition uh, to the military industrial complex and to these huge arms packages and for a peace settlement uh, along the line the Pope is suggesting that that would include recognizing that NATO expansion has to stop and other th points the Pope is making have to be part of, uh, you know, uh, recognized as part of this peace solution and we have to restore uh, you know reduce military spending dramatically and focus on human needs especially in a time of pandemic we have to you know spend on public health measures yeah and actually that might have been a, a deciding factor in some of the primaries we are going to talk about a little later as you say the the money that's going you know, straight into the pockets of arms manufacturers instead of toward, say, COVID testing and treatment in the United States. Uh, I, I want to ask you one more. We might only have time for one more question. Maybe we'll get into. But, um, you know, in the United States, of course, there is nothing but praise for the flow of weapons. Uh, yesterday, the U.S. Defense Secretary was saying that the Ukrainian soldiers, that, as you point out, we have trained in the use of our weapons are now putting them to good use in the conflict. Um, the report on his comments also cited a report from earlier this week that we have somehow uh, not mentioned yet. But that is that, uh, yeah, you know, according to U.S. intelligence reports, Russia is planning to formally annex the Donetsk uh, and Luhansk oblasts, I think the entire provinces, in the coming days, probably after referendums held under dubious circumstances. And so I wonder, I wonder how likely you think that is to come to pass, how much uh, credence we should give some of these reports, and also what kind of reaction that would elicit. Well, I think, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. It would react, uh, elicit a very positive reaction among the people uh, of those provinces who've suffered under eight years of Ukrainian attacks. A uh, UN study found that at least 80% of the uh, violence and atrocities were committed by the Ukrainian military. And you know, uh, since the war conflict started in 2014, I mean, that conflict started when there was a, a coup in Ukraine, and the Ukrainian government tried to impose Ukrainian language laws on those provinces, which are Russian-speaking primarily, and it was effort really to obliterate their culture. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, viewers can look up Patrick Lancaster has done some good firsthand reporting about how the people welcomed Russia as saviors from the, the terror they were experiencing over an eight-year period. Many had to live in underground shelters for years. Some kids were born there and almost grew up underground because of the constant bombing and shelling. They couldn't lead a normal life. So maybe this will restore a normal life uh, to those long-suffering people. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but of course there'll be a hysterical reaction. Uh, in, the, in the West and the United States, because this conflict has been presented in a very distorted way, and there has been, you know, strong Russophobia uh, that prevents any kind of uh, balanced uh, uh, understanding and empathy for the people of East Ukraine, and recognition that Ukraine as a country may be divided, but there are a lot of people who support and sympathize w with the Russians for a variety of reasons, or want to align with Russia and uh, view Russia positively not negatively. Jeremy Kuzmarov, that's all we have time for today, but thanks so much for joining us. That was the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine, Jeremy Kuzmarov. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for having me. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking again to the head of a media organization that is going up against PayPal. Uh, We told you last week uh, that PayPal had suspended the account of Consortium News. We spoke to Joe Loria of Consortium News about the, the funds that PayPal had seized and the timeline for maybe getting them back. But of course, Consortium wasn't alone. Mint Press News had their account suspended and their funds frozen for a time. Journalist Caleb Maupin has also had his PayPal account frozen and seized. And now we have NewsGuard. We spoke about this on the show, uh, I think, last week. NewsGuard right. threatening uh, Gray Zone. Right. With a with a red tag. It is, of course, you know, tagging other news sites that it decides are unreliable, pro-Russian or that disseminate disinformation. Uh, NewsGuard was founded by attorney and court TV founder Stephen Brill and former Wall Street Journal publisher L. Gordon Krovitz. But if you look at its board of advisors, yeah, boy. It's spooky. Uh, there are former really CIA is. heads. There's a former secretary general of NATO. You have a bunch of uh, former White House advisors from the Bush and Obama eras. You have uh, a former Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security secretary. So, you know, I think that is interesting. And NewsGuard, you know, NewsGuard and Proper Not, I think they kind of made a big splash in 20, 2017, honestly, sure. maybe. Yeah. And I don't think people, Regular people have given them that much attention, but they advise media companies and social media companies. Uh, And so, you know, if they give you a red tag and Google immediately disseminates it, that does actually affect your ability to reach people. And so we are going to talk about that. We are also going to talk uh, to the head of an organization who finds herself in a battle with PayPal right now. We're joined by Bnar Adley, who's an American journalist and author and also the CEO and editor in chief of Mint Press News. Minar, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So talk to us first about your experience with PayPal. I, I know earlier this week, um, you know, the the flare went up that PayPal had uh, frozen your account, kicked you off the the program, and also I think seized some funds that were in that account. So talk to us about what happened to you. Yeah, so last week I received an email from PayPal basically telling me that I could no longer use PayPal, that we were banned. And that was my account. And um, my account actually manages Mint Press's account. So it was uh, two, both of us had basically been banned. And I was also informed that our funds, uh, any balances that we have that were not transferred yet would be seized for at least 180 days. And then after 180 days, we would be notified by PayPal if we were going to get that money back um, unless, you know, that amount would be taken from PayPal to cover any sort of like expenses as part of like their investigation. So, um, it is, you know, very clearly a form of theft. Um, you know, luckily, um, I actually received an email yesterday and I, I really do believe it's because of the backlash and the pushback and this, you know, public outrage and all the media coverage we've been getting that PayPal, while we still are banned, uh, we are allowed to, um, 
you know, transfer our balance over. Oh, thank God. But I do believe, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for consortium, they had a much higher balance that they had not transferred yet. Luckily, we had transferred our balance before I had received the initial email. But like for consortium news, they had about $10,000 in their back, you know, that they had not transferred yet. So that would have been a big loss for independent media, um, you know, so... So in general, though, I mean, we, we believe that PayPal banning myself, Mint Press Consortium and all the other journalists that you had mentioned, like Caleb Maupin, is blatant censorship of dissenting journalists and outlets um, who have been uh, exposing and unapologetically working as watchdog outlets to expose the profiteers of the permanent war state. And with the war in Ukraine raging on right now, there's no question that there's a major witch hunt taking place against alternative media to ensure that any alternative to the mainstream corporate narrative, to the to the war machine's narrative, official narrative of the war in Ukraine, or even the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, or even apartheid Israel's occupation of Palestine and Saudi Arabia's genocidal war in Yemen to the sanctions regime war that's taking place against other countries like Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Iran, Russia. We're at that forefront. And because we are in wartime, this witch hunt is uh, taking a very heavy hand in purging uh, dissenting voices. Can I ask, and, and forgive me if I missed this earlier, but did you get any explanation as to why your account was, was going to be frozen? Uh, it was a one-line explanation that said that uh, my account poses a potential risk. It's oh. extremely <laughs> vague language, <laughs> extremely vague language. And I mean, it's unacceptable. I mean, this yes. is, it's unacceptable. There's really no reason why we should have um, been targeted. I mean, we at Mint Press were using PayPal uh, to receive donations. People were making their you know, monthly membership dues uh, through PayPal. And then we as a business were uh, paying out our freelance investigative journalists through PayPal. And I actually had to send an email two days ago notifying uh, about, you know, pretty much all of our freelancers, which, you know, for independent media, we have a lot, of, we work with a lot of freelancers. Sure. And I notified them that, you know, we can no longer pay you via PayPal. And I think a lot of people were pretty outraged. They were disappointed and sad. And so we are looking at alternatives now. And again, um, I mean, John and I, John and I were talking, I think it was just last week about that hit piece. Uh, and now I can't remember where it, it was. was in the Daily Beast. And the Daily Beast uh, su suggesting that, uh, you know, taking the law, challenging the sort of endless war, the permanent war state, challenging sanctions wars, challenging U.S. imperialism is a way to get rich. And just again, like so you're talking outrageous. about people whose lives can be disrupted at the loss of one paycheck or a couple of paychecks. Like these are not big budgets that we are talking about here. It's a, it's a shame they're not bigger. But like the idea, you know, that, that you know, going after the big bucks to challenge uh, the, the NATO line in Syria or something. It's just ridiculous. Nora, I also want to ask. Well, I, I want to oh, ask, ahead, you know, uh, apparently a uh, consortium is going to join uh, or is considering joining this lawsuit, a class action lawsuit uh, against PayPal in Northern California. And I wonder if you are also considering that at Mint Press. We are considering it um, because, you know, since we kind of sounded the alarm about this big tech financial censorship, um, we were actually approached by multiple organizations and people who had said that they were the same, very similar things had happened to them. Um, and we hope to join this sort of uh, lawsuit. And we have to remember that PayPal is founded by billionaires, big tech billionaires. And it's a it's a partner of the Anti-Defamation League, which is responsible for 
um, banning so many Palestinian Americans from sending money overseas to their families and from even accessing their own funds on uh, the platform. And so there's no question that, you know, we are living right now in an intellectual no-fly zone where online censorship and financial censorship of dissenting journalism and activists um, has now become uh, the new norm. And this really sets a very dangerous precedent because we're now seeing these big tech giants working hand in hand with the national security state to basically take control of people's money. I mean, they could starve people uh, right here in the U.S., their own citizens, if they don't toe the government line. You know, one of the things, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, one of the things that's so outrageous to me is this this point that, that Menard just raised. Pierre Omidyar, who's supposed to be this great champion of free speech and alternative media, the, the founder of The Intercept, he's also the owner or the primary owner of PayPal. And he's behind right. this. So, you know, it's time for Pierre Omidyar to put his money where his mouth is. Either he's going to be a champion for alternative media or he's going to be the guy that shuts us all down mm -hmm. because he can't be both. That's such a good point. Yeah. And I think we really have to be worrisome of people like Pierre Omidyar, who founded The Intercept, because uh, PayPal, I mean, we're not the first victims of PayPal financial censorship. We have to look at 2010 when uh, Assange and WikiLeaks right. uh, were blocked from receiving donations from PayPal. And then in 2012, an EU parliamentary resolution criticized providers like PayPal for their arbitrary economic censorship. And so this absolutely has to do with the billionaire class like Pierre Omidyar, who has personally waged a war against WikiLeaks. Um, he is very, he's a, he's an opponent of WikiLeaks, in fact. And, um, you know, when he started The Intercept, many in the, in, you know, in, from the whistleblowers that we have spoken to, government whistleblowers, they actually have alleged that uh, the founding of The Intercept was to take control of uh, U.S. government leaks, uh, like the Snowden files, and also to act as a honey trap to whistleblowers. Wow. When you feel at the whistleblowers that leaked to uh, The Intercept, yeah. pretty much the majority of them have been targeted and um, have been made public and have been investigated by uh, the intelligence community and they're behind bars. So there's a lot of questions behind people like Pierre Omidyar, who has a financial stake in the war in Ukraine, who is embedded and works hand in hand with the Obama administration's um, war architects. I mean, this guy is a Democratic Party uh, guy. So he is definitely somebody to be uh, that we should be worried of. I would just personally like uh, Pierre Midyar to give The Intercept a little bit more money so they can stop sending me emails asking <laughs> me right. for $5. Every time I do, I think, turn around, turn around and ask that guy behind you. I mean, the other thing that well, I want. No, go ahead, Menar. Well, I was going to say, you know, these these outlets that are funded by billionaires are like treated as these respectable outlets. Right. And mm -hmm. they work hand in hand with Silicon Valley, big tech and the national security state with war profiteers like NATO. Yet when independent organizations have funders um, or if they look at um, or if they try to get donations from their readers, we're treated as suspect. Like we have some sort of like weird agenda. And that's right. and that's what the. the that Daily Beast article about those in independent journalists, they treat them as suspect just yeah. for taking donations from our readers. But that's the whole point is that for our First Amendment to thrive, we have to have a media that's for the people, by the people. That's actually how our First Amendment defines uh, our First Amendment and our, our media to act. It cannot. We have to act as a watchdog, not as a lapdog.
Well, let me also ask you, because, you know, it's not only about, you know, shutting off these avenues of funding, but it's about smearing, smearing these independent media organizations across the board. Right. I mean, uh, Mimpress News was recently under attack on Wikipedia with editors uh, calling it a far left website, a disseminator of disinformation, saying it's pro-Iran, pro-Assad, but not actually pointing out, as far as we could see, anything that Mint Press reported that was untrue. It's more, uh, you know, it, it's just, again, uh, saying that somehow you keep you keep bad bedfellows because you uh, partner with uh, the likes of Max Blumenthal and Kevin Gastola, who, again, they're not pointing to any uh, anything wrong that either of them have reported, just saying, oh, well, they're bad. Their political views are bad. And so therefore they must be unreliable. That's not the same thing. And then we mentioned disorganization. Um, NewsGuard, which has recently been threatening Consortium News, uh, accusing it of being pro-Russian and spreading uh, propaganda and, you know, making them sort of grovel in front of NewsGuard so they don't get this red tag. And as we pointed out, these organizations present themselves as neutral, right? Wikipedia, oh, we're just a sort of neutral uh, information uh, catalog, right? Uh, NewsGuard and Propernot, hey guys, we're just trying to figure out what the truth is and tell you what it is. But if your advisors are, again, the NATO Secretary Generals, former CIA directors, former Homeland Security directors, as you say, this sort of connection between um, government, uh, the military industrial complex and uh, Silicon Valley is really insidious. And I wonder how you Uh, how you fight back against it, because it's a pretty broad net that is being cast right now. Yeah, I mean, our our Wikipedia page, it's not a secret, has been edited almost on a daily basis for the past decade to Mm -hmm. be written as if we are this Russian disinformation outlet. You know, it's been edited to say that we support Assad and the governments of Russia, Iran, Syria, um, that we oppose the governments of Israel and Saudi Arabia, like there's something wrong with that. <laughs> We're a conspiratorial website. <laughs> We're anti-Western, anti-Jewish conspiracy. Not once in our Wikipedia page or any of these articles that have been written about us have actually, um, you know, broken down or challenged any sort of any of our reporting. It's always been labels and smear campaigns, and that's really just a testament to the kind of reporting that we're doing is that, you know, we are up against <laughs> these, uh, the war machine and we are breaking through the propaganda very successfully. So they can't, um, you know, break through, um, the truth tellers, you know, they, the way that they target dissenters is just by labeling them to dismiss us. And if you look at NewsGuard, like you said, it's the board includes, um, you know, CIA director Michael Hayden, former secretary of State Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, you know, who's a, who's and then self-described chief propagandist for the Obama uh, administration, Richard Stingle. These people are uh, neocons and neoliberals that brought us all of the wars, the permanent war state that we see um, today. And the way that we break through is by exposing them. That's all that we can do is just we report the facts and we sound the alarm about this censorship campaign. In fact, Mitt Press has been at the forefront of uh, bringing attention to this uh, connection between Silicon Valley tech giants and the national security state and how they're very much working hand in hand with the military industrial complex from weapons manufacturers to NATO funded think tanks like the Atlantic Council. And so all we can do is just push back through our reporting. And at the end of the day, there are more of us than there are of them. And so that's why it's so important to have media that is nonpartisan, that's not pushing a left right paradigm that unites people 
across all party lines. And that's what we try to do at Mint Press. And I think that's what sets us apart, too, from other independent alternative outlets is we never push like a political agenda. It's all about we don't support war. We want to save the planet. We want to bring humanity closer together Mm -hmm. and build bridges against the permanent war state and draw attention to the class war that's taking place between the one percent and basically everybody else on this planet, because at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. Minar, we've only got about a minute left, and I just want to ask what what kind of response you've gotten from from regular people seeing this, and also if you think you know maybe we are reaching a point of overreach, right, where people's eyebrows start to be raised at the the, the censorship and the smearing. Well, I think people are concerned. I mean, we've received, I mean, I've received hundreds of messages on social media from people who said, you know, I don't agree with you all the time, but hey, I don't think that this is okay. PayPal and these big tech financial giants should not be uh, freezing uh, people's accounts and seizing their money and banning them from from being used. And so people are starting to see that you know, this is not just about targeting people on the right, you know, like white supremacists. This is about targeting anybody that has a differing uh, opinion or alternative perspective to the establishment. And this is going to end up um, affecting people, not just that are uh, anti-war, that but people that, you know, question big pharma or that want to talk about alternative medicine or want to look at like alternative makeup. You know what I mean? Like it mm-hmm. can be about anything that, you know, threatens the, pro- the, the profiteers, like the oligarchs in this country and, and around the world. So people are afraid. They are outraged by this and we are receiving a lot of support. And I think that's why PayPal ended up sending us that email yesterday mm-hmm. to say that, okay, you can have your funds, but you're still banned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'll take, take what we can get at this point. That's very good to hear. That's all the time we have. That was Minar Adley. She's CEO and editor in chief of Mint Press News. Thanks so much for joining us, Minar. We are going to take a quick break now and come back to talk about uh, defamation lawsuits, attacks at comedy shows, the DNI, warrantless electronic searches. There's a lot. You'll hear it here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. We have a lot to talk about with our next guest. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence this week published its annual statistical transparency report, and it revealed that the FBI conducted only 3.4 million searches of Americans' data without asking for one single warrant. The FBI is required by law to obtain a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that's the FISA court, every single time it accesses the data. It did that 3.4 million times and never asked for a warrant. In other news, George Soros is recommending that everybody leave Twitter once Elon Musk's purchase of that platform goes through. This is in response to a comment that Musk made recently that he will investigate Soros's Open Societies Foundation. The computer repairman who had access to the Hunter Biden laptop and released its contents has filed a lawsuit against Politico, CNN, The Daily Beast and Congressman Adam Schiff 
saying that they falsely accused him of peddling Russian disinformation. 51 former senior CIA officers, and I mean senior CIA officers, also wrote an open letter saying that the laptop was a Russian disinformation campaign. Don't they look stupid now? Yesterday saw primary elections in Ohio and Indiana, and Trump endorsed Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, won the Republican nomination handily. And finally, and maybe we should have saved this for news of the weird on Friday, but... Anyway, comedian Dave Chappelle was attacked on stage last night during a performance at the Hollywood Bowl. A man with a gun, or what looked like a gun, jumped on stage and attacked Chappelle. The gun turned out to be fake, but the knife that was hidden inside it was not fake. Comedian and actor Jamie Foxx, who was standing just off stage, along with security guards, tackled the attacker, who was then arrested by Los Angeles police. We are going to talk about all of that with Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. He's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis, and his latest book is called The Stringer. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun, Ted. Where do we even start? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with this DNI report. This is a report that comes out every single year, and almost nobody pays any attention to it. And in fact... It came out more than a week ago, and somebody from the Wall Street Journal happened to be looking at it and realized what it was and did an article. So the bottom line is this. The FBI committed a crime, a major crime. So should we expect charges against people who have been arrested by the FBI to be dismissed because the FBI collected information without a warrant? I mean, that's kind of the logical constitutional thing, right? Uh, it's the logical constitutional thing. That's why it's not going to happen exactly. in this country. Exactly. Um, you know, the, the funny part about this is the FISA court, as you well know, John, is a rubber stamp. Yeah, they, they, sure. They give the intelligence community every warrant that they ask for. So it seems like, uh, you know, they weren't, the FBI was, uh, seems to have been operating more from laziness, uh, not bothering to get the rubber stamp that they needed from the FISA court that they would have gotten anyway. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's baffling. You know, I've got a friend who uh, was an FBI whistleblower. He worked in the FBI lab and he was the guy who in the 1980s came out and said, look, they're screwing things up in the FBI lab, right? They're testing blood and hair and fibers and all this stuff. And they're just saying, uh, regardless of what the what the findings are, yeah, the guy's uh, the guy's guilty. Uh, this hair matches, the fiber matches, everybody's guilty. Well, when he came out and said that this was happening at the FBI, what did they do? N they didn't fire him. They declared him to be um, mentally ill, and they forced him to go to a mental hospital. Right. He was in this mental hospital for months. He finally got out. The doctors determined that there was nothing wrong with him. And he resigned from the FBI and then went to the media. So here you have a situation where the FBI has clearly and obviously committed a crime. And I hate to say that I agree with you that nothing will likely come of it. They're going to get away with it. And God knows how many people have been arrested and charged for federal crimes or with federal crimes by the FBI. And as it turns out, the FBI never bothered to get a, a, a warrant against them. 
Right. And those cases should all be thrown out. Obviously, yeah. that's that's our legal system. And uh, I, I would imagine that only a tiny fraction of them will ever get that result uh, if they have really outstanding attorneys who are able to uh, delve to the bottom of this and they have the resources to do so. Uh, and if, assuming they can get a cooperative federal uh, federal judge to mm -hmm. uh, allow them access to this information. That's a lot of assumptions. Uh, I, I yeah. wouldn't count on on that. I have to agree. Ted, can you explain to me this beef between George Soros and Elon Musk? Musk announced that that every company that does business with Twitter would be able to DM him, to direct message him once he takes over. And he said he wanted to get to know every one of these companies that has uh, a, an advertising relationship with uh, with Twitter. Well, that's all. That sounds great. Right. All fine and good. Uh, but then he made a crack on Saturday about Soros DMing him, uh, saying something to the effect that, hey, uh, George Soros, uh, message me and I'll tell you about the investigation that I'm initiating against you and against Open Society's foundation. So Soros responded by saying that everybody should get off Twitter. What's going on here? Or is this just a meaningless clash of the titans? Uh, well, I, what's going on here is uh, sort of Elon Musk is sort of a Fox News watching, New York Post reading, uh, sort of would have been listening to Rush Limbaugh if he mm. wasn't dead, maybe still is, uh, <laughs> you know, conservative. So he's, you know, he absorbs and regurgitates a lot of right wing talking points. And obviously, George Soros is the bet noir of the right. And oh, yes. somehow they've gotten it into their into their heads that he's some sort of stark, raving, uh, mad socialist who's. Uh, fun, financing far left causes. We all here wish that were true. Would that he um, were, yes. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, that is not true. He's just a Democrat uh, who who finances a lot of Democratic uh, candidates and uh, and causes. He's sort of a moveon.org kind of guy. Um, but uh, so I think he. That's just like you said, John. It's a crack. He Musk was just joking. There's no investigation. There's no threat of an investigation. Musk can't and wouldn't investigate anyone. Uh, he's just joking. And it sounds like uh, George is, you know, maybe getting a little, I don't know what his sense of humor is like. Uh, he's, uh, but it sounds like he's maybe uh, a little humorless in this matter. Mm -hmm. uh, he should have just shot back with a funny jibe about self-driving cars or something. Uh, but, but instead he, uh, he's sort of coming off as an old crank. Yeah. It's my understanding that he doesn't really have a sense of humor. So maybe maybe that's what we're looking at here. Either way, it's going to be kind of fun to watch these two scrap it out. Even if Soros is, you know, what, 90 years old, 90 something years old. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be kind of fun. Hey, I want to talk totally. for a few minutes, if we could, about this, uh, this hapless uh, computer repairman from Delaware. Uh, much of the media, Adam Schiff, half the CIA's leadership from the last decade, all said that this Hunter Biden laptop, that this poor guy had, you know, dropped off at the shop and Hunter Biden never picked it up. Half of these people have said that this was a Russian disinformation operation. It it wasn't. It just wasn't. It was Hunter Biden's actual laptop. He admitted that it was lap his laptop. He admitted that everything on it was his. Um, he said that it was damning. He admitted it. And we still don't know exactly what it is that's on this thing. Um, but the criticism of, the, of this repairman led to threats against him, threats against his life. 
He ended up um, losing his business. Now he's filing this defamation lawsuit against the big boys. Like I said, it's it's CNN, it's Politico, it's the Daily Beast, and it's Adam Schiff. What do you think will come of this? Does he, does he have a case or is this just a question of a citizen, you know, getting caught up in politics and as unfortunate as that might be, you know, sometimes people get screwed in America? Well, it depends a lot on what the court is, uh, you know, if yeah. it's in a state court or if it's in federal court. Um, what's I mean, I have a little experience in these matters, having yes. filed uh, two defamation suits. Um, one of which made it all the way to the uh, California State Supreme Court, which is kind of an amazing thing uh, before ultimately being shot down. Um, what it's going to all come down to is something called the anti-slap statute. Yes. Uh, most states, ha- most people live in a state with one. Uh, it's used by defendants in anti-defam in uh, defamation lawsuits. It's the first thing that uh, your lawyer will will if you are sued for defamation will use media companies use them with abundance, cut and pasting like mad. Uh, and so you can just count on CNN and Politico and all these other organizations will hit this guy with an anti-slap. And uh, even in federal court where there's no federal anti-slap law, although there's been a push uh, um, for a, a federal anti-slap law, which I think would be an atrocious idea. Um, but uh, even in states that don't have, even in uh, jurisdictions that don't have one, uh, sometimes if you sue for federal, you sue federally, uh, they will apply uh, the federal, uh, they'll f- apply the state's anti-slap law to your federal case. That's what happened to Sarah Palin when mm-hmm. she uh, sued the New York Times mm-hmm. unsuccessfully. And she was hit by anti-slap uh, retroactively, by the way. She sued before anti-slap was, was passed in New York State. And then uh, they, they applied the anti-slap statute to her case, even though it was passed after she filed, which I think is just absolutely outrageous. Uh, so uh, she, they're gonna, they're, so she won't be, I mean, uh, he will not be able to get discovery, which makes it very hard for him to prove his claims. Uh, and during that, and he's going to have to prove to a judge, not a jury, that he would be likely to prevail the anti-slap statute is written in a very convoluted way. Most judges don't really understand it. Most judges don't really rule on it correctly. Um, it's supposed to, any case with sort of a bare modicum of, of possible success is supposed to survive anti-slap, but in, in reality, few do. And uh, they and and so if he if they rule in favor of the defendants, he will have to pay their exorbitant. $900 an hour legal fees, mm-hmm. um, and, and they will destroy him. Now, there is the case of the uh, kid, the conservative kid, I think from Kentucky, who was on the Washington Mall, who yes. was smeared. Now, he, pre- he was going to prevail, and, they, and they, they, these media companies had to settle with him. That's, an ex- that's exceptional. It's very unusual. So he hasn't, this guy has an uphill battle. He shouldn't have an uphill battle. What he really has is an open and shut case uh, under common sense. But but the but defamation claim law has been uh, eroded to the point where it's virtually impossible to sue successfully for defamation in the United States. Right. You know, as as somebody like you who has a defamation suit pending right now in federal court against three defendants and um, and soon will have a state defamation suit against 
a, a prominent defendant. Um, I take this kind of thing very seriously. In Virginia, where I live, um, has just amended its anti-slap legislation specifically in response to the Johnny Depp case. And so it's hard to sue people successfully for defamation. Even if you've been defamed, that's not the issue. The issue is, did the defendant have a First Amendment right to defame you? So these, these yeah, and it's cases all defined, are tough. And it's all defined, as you know, John, by the 1964 uh, case, uh, Sullivan versus New York, New York Times. That's right. Uh, in the, when you sue a media defendant, you have to show that they knew that what they were publishing was false. They knew that it was harmful and that they published it anyway, or that they were insanely reckless. They had reckless disregard for the truth. Um, you know, but even if you can show all those things, like, for example, in my case against the L.A. Times, uh, there was definitely uh, beyond uh, reckless disregard for the truth. Uh, they published one thing once it was that thing was proven to be false. Right. And they published again. <laughs> so that's second time is beyond reckless disregard for the truth. That's actual malice. They, they've, they, they are proving they do not care about the truth. They're knowingly publishing yes. a falsehood. Um, and it still didn't matter. Um, and so there's, you know, this is, it is really hard. I take it seriously too. Uh, it's very near and dear to me. I think anybody who, anyone can imagine uh, being smeared uh, in some awful way. In this case, the guy was basically accused of being a traitor, which yeah, is exactly. literally the worst thing you can be. Yeah. I mean, literally, the Constitution provides the death penalty. Yeah, you get angry for that. You took all the crime. words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Yes. It's it's the only crime. Like, if the, the Constitution doesn't say if you rape children, you get, you know, we execute right. you. But it says if you commit treason, we do. So, um, you know, it's so literally, it's the worst thing that you could possibly be accused of under American law. Um, you know, it was plainly false. They had the uh, look. Here's the thing. They had reckless disregard for the truth because a media company first rule is if your mom says she loves you, check it out. They obviously didn't check it out. If they checked it out, they would have found it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. So but, you know, the thing is, media companies are getting away with this kind of thing all the time. The, the Sarah Palin case, they didn't buy the New York by the Times, his own, uh, you know, uh, admission. They didn't check it out. Uh, they didn't know that what they said about Sarah Palin was not true because they never bothered to look into it. In fact, someone, one of their fact checkers told them it wasn't true and they ignored that fact checker. So they had actual malice and reckless disregard both. Nevertheless, she lost. You know, this is this is a thing for me personally. I've written about this a couple of times. This use this the the. The ease with which we throw around dangerous language, like the word traitor. You're, you're exactly right, Ted. Treason is the gravest crime with which an American can be charged, and it carries the death penalty. And people call each other traitors all the time in America. I mean, John Brennan went on NBC and called Donald Trump a traitor. Well, listen, I don't like Donald Trump either, but to accuse the man of treason with the implication being then that he should be executed. See, this is what the courts are for, as far as I'm concerned. That really is defamation. Uh, let's turn to politics, Ted. Um, we've been closely following the Ohio Republican Senate primary here. We talk about it all the time. And earlier this week, this week, it looked like a very tight race between J.D. Vance, 
the author of Hillbilly Elegy, whose mother is a junkie and it's somehow Joe Biden's fault. Uh, Josh <laughs> Mandel. <laughs> I've been thinking about that for days now. <laughs> <laughs> and State Senator Matt Dolan, one of the owners of the Cleveland Guardians, who spent more than $10 million of his own money on this race. Uh, in the end, it actually wasn't very close. Mandel won by about 88,000 votes, almost 10 percentage points. Ohio, over the last 10 years or so, has become more and more red. And it looks like Donald Trump's endorsement of Vance went far because he was he was polling consistently in third place until Donald Trump endorsed him. What lesson should we take from this race? And, and I want to throw a, a little uh, bit of trivia um, at you, too. No Republican has ever won the presidency without winning Ohio. And so if you're a Republican presidential candidate, Ohio's the bellwether. Uh, Richard Nixon once said that in the 1972 election, he needed to campaign only in the state of Ohio and that everything else would fall once Ohio fell. What do you think about all this? What do you think about Ohio as a bellwether? What do you think about this uh, this Senate race? Um, and and what should or can the Democrats do about Ohio? Ohio is a bellwether. Whether that will continue or not is anybody's guess. I grew up in Dayton. Yes, which indeed. Is the bellwether. Bell, it's it's Montgomery County, third district of Ohio. It's yes. the most. Um, it is the most uh, bellwether county in the uh, state of Ohio. So you literally could just hold every presidential election in Dayton and you'd get the same exact results as you would nationally. The rest of us could all just forget the whole thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, which, by the way, might be a really good idea. We could save a lot of money. A lot of um, money. And uh, the thing is, so I, uh, you know, I've been, I've been watching J.D. Vance's uh, rise and I would like to say fall, but no, I guess uh, rise, rise and second rise. Yeah, and the guy's uh, only great, 37 great, years old. With great interest, um, I've always thought I thought Hillbilly Elegy was a bit of a hack job and a scam. And uh, I think and the way that the uh, national corporate media lapped it up, yep. lapped him up yep. until they discovered that this sort of like, well, he's a right winger. But wait, he's a really right winger. That's when they discovered that that when they realized he was a Trumpy. Well, that just went a little too far for them. Um, Ohio is blighted by NAFTA. I mean, there's been a long post-industrial decline, but NAFTA was kind of the last mm -hmm. nail in the coffin for that state. Uh, you know, the, the inner cities are all hollowed out. Uh, you know, I mean, you talk about the state turning more red. You know, I'm part of the, I'm part of the reason. I, I left because I left couldn't Ohio. find work when I graduated from college. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would have stayed. Um, every, major, you know, every major employer that was in my hometown uh, left or closed. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's ground zero in the national opioid epidemic. It's, you know, it's a catastrophe. And Donald Trump uh, won in large part in 2016. He won Ohio and the nation because he went, he was able to stand up on stage. He went to Dayton a lot, by the way. Mm -hmm. it, it, and he would say, you know, I see you. I see all the rust. I see all the rusty factories. I see all these beautiful, empty factories. And it, it, it's sad and disgusting. And we need to make America great again. The Make America Great thing, that's about Ohio. Yeah. It's about Pennsylvania and Indiana and Illinois. It's about the Rust Belt and Michigan. Um, 
he didn't do anything for those people, but he but it was the first time that any major party presidential candidate had even acknowledged that, hey, something's up that's not awesome here. So um, he that's I think, uh, you know, Vance was smart to hitch his wagon to Trump in Ohio. You know, it's not it's not like Ohioans relate to Donald Trump. They're they're working class people. They're they're, they're, they have a union, they're heavily very pro-union. They're, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, they're very common sense people, and they're very unpretentious. Like even rich people mm-hmm. are not ostentatious there. Um, Trump isn't anything like them. Voting for Trump is a raised middle finger to Washington. That's yeah. why they do it. They're trying to get – they're yelling and screaming. Trump is their way of yelling and screaming to try to get the attention of the Democrats – and it, it hasn't worked so far. So, um, you know, what this, all, what this all says is, A, they will vote for a carpetbagger, which Vance is. He's yes. a carpetbagger. He's not from there. Sure. Uh, and and he's, uh, they will vote for a carpetbagger endorsed by a charlatan uh, in order to send a message. And it also says that if Trump runs again, which I think he will if he's still alive, um, he will carry the state of Ohio handily. Let me ask you real quickly then about uh... – about the race that is going to begin shaping up now between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan is a congressman from Youngstown, from uh, Mahoning County. His district is the definition of the Rust Belt. It's Mahoning County and Trumbull County, Youngstown and Warren, Ohio. Um, unemployment is very high. It, it was solidly pro-labor, pro-gun, uh, uh, anti-abortion. Everybody was a Democrat, but they voted for, you know, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Well, now they're Republicans. And even though he's a Democrat, um, he represents a lot of people who are new to the Republican Party. But he's also, I would call him a conservative Democrat, a labor-crat, one of those old school 60s or 70s era, you know, conservative Democrats from the Rust Belt. Do you think he's up to this race or do you think this is Vance's? I think it's going to be uh, closer than anybody thinks. I wouldn't call this race. I mean, uh, first, I mean, Vance is definitely going to be uh, held. His feet will be held to the fire for the carpetbagger uh, thing. Uh, I think for if if Ryan's campaign has any smarts at all, Ryan's a very appealing uh, campaigner. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's kind of got like the you know Al Smith, uh, happy warrior kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, he just seems like he's very Ohio. Like I was, I, I just found myself liking him when I saw when I saw him speak. Uh, I could see him doing well. Uh, Vance is a is a rougher sort. You know, um, he's a little hard to swallow and and kind of grating. Um, so just in terms of temperament, he you know I think. Ryan's a much better fit for the state, yeah. and the state is definitely not like deep red. Uh, it is, it is, uh, you know, it is. It's still a. I think it's still a swing state. It's a swing state that's currently swinging GOP, but you mm-hmm. know, there's a strong Democratic heritage there in the same way that there is in like Wisconsin, right? Um, so I think you know, this could definitely go Ryan's way. It's going to depend on you know if Ryan can provoke. Vance into saying something, uh, you know, intemperate that could go, that could help. Um, it, it's, but if, I think I got to say, uh, as a lefty, I really think that a Bernie type fiery 
socialist, democratic socialist would stand a better chance against Vance. Howard Metzenbaum. Uh, Howard Metzenbaum was wildly popular in Ohio. Yes. And he was a Bernie kind of uh, kind of senator and was reelected, you know, twice. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that there, think, there, there's a place for a Bernie-style Democrat in Ohio, as crazy I as mean, it might I, sound. No, I mean, I think that it was the same with general election against Trump. And I think the problem is Democrats, do, they don't obviously don't want to do that. And they keep saying, no, 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 it's be, you know, it'll, it'll turn too many people off. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just, I think at this point, it's just garbage. I agree. Yeah. I think they're wrong. Uh, Ted, something that we haven't discussed in a long time uh, is the recent Cleveland, uh, the 11th Congressional District, where Representative Chantel Brown, who was the DNC's preferred candidate, again defeated former Representative Nina Turner. This matchup was between the left and the center. And for the second consecutive time, the center won. Politico this week said that the Democratic Party's left wing was trying hard to increase its numbers in the House in order to have more influence on policy, but they failed in Ohio. Is there a larger issue here, or is this just one single race that progressives lost and uh, should just move on from? It's, I go with B, and uh, the reason is I've been watching Nina Turner for a little while here. I really like her. I think she's just fantastic, but I think she's sort of missing that sort of intangible... Um, you know, likable, likability thing mm-hmm. that you want for a candidate. I, I, I would want her, you know, advising a candidate. I'd want her, uh, you know, if I won elected office, I'd have her, I'd appoint her to something. But I just don't think as a campaigner that she's, somehow she's just not connecting with voters yeah. uh, in a way that, and I, I think it comes down to style or personality. I don't know. It's really intangible. I think she's fantastic. Uh, she says all the right things. I just quoted her in my column this week. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, much respect, but, you know, not everybody's cut out to run for elected office. I probably am not cut off to cut out to run for elected office either. Well, maybe so also the, the smear job from the last time around just stuck. It like stuck. that was effective enough. I don't know. It was like she was she was doing well. Uh, she I don't even remember now what it was. She said something that made APAC go uh, uh, take up arms against her. And there were a bunch of ads against her. And then I, I don't know, it could just be that that was pretty effective. And she didn't have the kind of name recognition that, uh, that you know, Bernie Sanders has. She's not. Yeah, I, I think that is probably going against her as well. And Cleveland has a lot of Jewish voters, right? So yeah. if you're perceived as being anti-Israeli, you know, you're going to lose Cleveland Heights. And, you know, they vote. They all vote. Yep. Hey, finally, let's talk about this bizarre attack on Dave Chappelle. He was performing at the Hollywood Bowl last night as part of his Netflix is a joke tour. And in the middle of his set, a a 23 year old man jumped up on stage and tackled him. The guy had what looked like a gun. But when you pull the trigger, a knife blade comes out. Uh, Chappelle was not hurt. And the guy was tackled and stomped enough that by security and Jamie Foxx that that he had to be hospitalized. And in fact, Chappelle ran over to the corner of the stage where the guy was to try to get his security guys to stop stomping on the guy. Um, Nobody has given any reason why this happened. Nobody in a position of authority has yet told us why this happened. But the speculation is, and I got this from the LA Times just before we started the show, that this could be a result of the problems that Chappelle has had with the trans community. Um, even 
even Jamie Foxx made a joke that the attacker was was a trans man. I mean, who knows if that who knows? I don't know if we have any idea if that's true. Or we not. don't have yeah. any idea at all whether that's true. And it could have been just a joke, right? Because of Chappelle's earlier problems. I know you don't have any more information than anybody else has, but I'd love to know your thoughts on this thing. Well, the parallels to to the to what happened to Chris Rock, you know, obviously are going to be front and center in yeah. everybody's mind. You know, I mean, I think the way that the Academy uh, of Motion Pictures has failed to really, uh, you know, dress down Will Smith for what he did kind of sets this precedent that, you know, comedians are, are and MCs are now like open season yeah, uh, fair to, game. For, for, physical, for physical violence. Um, you know, I, I also would like to say that Jamie Foxx is outside from being an outstanding actor, someone I'd like to hang out with just in case anything like that were to happen to me. <laughs> um, he's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it is, it is very disturbing. Really. And, you know, the 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 anti-trans thing, um, you know, that he's accused of and, you know, there's some basis for, um, you know, he he and J.K. Rowling have both been right. Really targeted. I mean, it's one of those things that like isn't really covered by the national media um, because it's really uncomfortable. Right. It's like to say, well, like, you know, we're we're all for trans rights. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, it's kind of like, you know, if there's any discussion about you know, the fact that some, you know, a lot of people who are not right wingers kind of don't get it, don't get the trans thing and having it, you know, it, it, I think the discussion that we need to have is that, um, you know, the the position of, of trans rights has improved very, very quickly in a short time in this country, which is fantastic. But it hasn't, re- it's, you know, compared to like, say, 400 years for blacks, um, it's like, that is a, you know, it's something that some people have trouble with and they're not adjusting to. And now we're, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's not out in the open. People just don't really talk about their feelings about it. It's like to be woke, you kind of have to shut up if you think, you know, like if you're like JK Rowling, like, well, I don't think, you know, the things that she said, I don't agree with what she said, but I think she has the right to say them without being canceled. Agreed. We're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Ted Rawl. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. He's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis, and his latest book is called The Stringer. Also, you can find more of his work at www.rall.com. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a very short break and come back, so stay tuned. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. CIA Director Bill Burns last month made a secret trip to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman al Saud and to try to mend ties ahead of a possible visit to the kingdom by President Biden. Although the visit is now being described as productive and good in tone, Burns ultimately failed and Biden never made the trip to Saudi Arabia. Relations between Saudi Arabia and the United States are as poor as they've ever been, and there are no indications that they'll improve anytime soon. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran nuclear deal, is near death. 
despite the fact that most players want to see it succeed. We're joined by Dr. Mohamed Mirandi. He's a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Welcome back, Mohamed. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, we're very happy to have you. Uh, let's start with this trip to Jeddah by CIA Director Bill Burns. Remember that Bill Burns is the former Deputy Secretary of State. He's a career diplomat, a career ambassador. The CIA job is somewhat new to him. Diplomats involved in the visit say that Burns met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and that they discussed the Yemen war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the JCPOA. They said that the tone of the meeting was good, the talks were productive, but then literally nothing came of them. Why not, do you think? Is this a personal conflict between Biden and MBS or Biden and the king? Why was this visit not successful? Well, I think a number of things have happened. The United States is losing its clout and its influence. And... Uh, What's going on in Ukraine is a part of this, but it's a much larger picture. So we are seeing increasingly countries disobeying Western powers who traditionally had hegemony over the global uh, community. Mm -hmm. So we see, for example, in Ukraine, in India, China, Brazil, South Africa, Iran, and, and a host of other countries have ignored the United States and the Europeans to be either with, with us or against us. And uh, this did not happen in 2003. So that that is one thing. And so Saudi Arabia sees that it has, um, it has leverage because the price of oil has gone up. Yes. And the United States is in desperate need of oil. I mean, even U.S. policy towards Venezuela has changed. So the Saudis, which have much larger exports, they have more leverage. And also, as you rightly pointed out, there's a there, the relationship between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman is not good because uh, Mohammed bin Salman is linked to uh, Trump. Mm -hmm. And it is believed that as we speak, Mohammed bin Salman is looking to the future and expecting that... Um, someone close to Trump will take the White House. So he will, he, he sees Biden as weak and uh, he hopes to wait him out. That's one way of looking at it. Of course, there are other ways of looking at it too, but I think this is, this is pretty, um, pretty accurate. At least this is a pretty accurate representation of a part of the story. Mohammed bin Salman uh, refused to take a call from President Biden in March and refused to increase oil production uh, to ease the cutoff of Russian oil to uh, to Europe. Even after the meeting with Burns, Biden is not going to visit Saudi Arabia. What do you make of this situation? Is is this a temporary problem between two old friends or does this point to a fundamental change in the relationship? And let me add one other thing uh, onto that question. How much of this is left over from the murder of, uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi? I think it, it is linked to Jamal Khashoggi. Ironically, the genocide in Yemen really is not an issue for the United States. They have no, they've had no problem with that. They were, they were part of it. 
But the murder of a single man who was uh, writing for the Washington Post and uh, for uh, the owner of Amazon, uh, that's a different story for, for the United States. And this, this became a big issue. And I think that as long as Biden is president or Mohammed bin Salman is crown prince, um, this relationship is, is not going to improve. And we have to keep in mind that not only does Mohammed bin Salman see himself to be in, um, empowered because of the rising oil prices, but he doesn't have an incentive to bring down the price of oil. He has mm -hmm. wasted hundreds of billions of dollars in the war in Yemen. Saudi reserves have declined dramatically. The country doesn't produce much really except, except for oil. And um, uh, the population has grown. Saudi Arabia has a, a great need for oil wealth. It's not as if their reserves are infinite. That's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's, that's the past. That's, that era is gone. So if he's going to bring down the price of oil, he would have to get something in return. And I don't think he feels that someone like Biden has really much to offer to him because they don't even have a good relationship anyway. I want to ask you also about the Yemen war. The, the Saudis have said that the U.S. is an unreliable ally in Yemen. And for those of us who watch this war, that is that is laughable. Um, we've been protesting the Yemen war since it started. Uh, the Saudis, though, want more weapons, they want more drones, they want more planes, and they're upset that we're not giving them literally everything that they want. The U.S., at least from a policy perspective, prefers to wind things down in Yemen. Is that really what, what this is about? Is, is it about Yemen and the fact that the Saudis believe that we're not reliable allies there and that we're walking away from them in Yemen? Not that the United States is walking away, because if it wasn't for the United States and the UK and Canada, mm -hmm. the Saudis would have been forced to end the war years ago. Yes. They, they cannot, uh, their air force wouldn't, according to experts, their air force would not last two weeks. They wouldn't be able to fly their planes in two, two weeks if it wasn't for the many, many thousands of military advisors, Western military advisors that are keeping the Air Force afloat. So uh, that's that's not the issue, but the, the Saudis want more. They want more involvement. And for the United States, that, that sort of escalation has, has been risky. But also I would add that the Americans have been strong arming the Saudis in recent weeks to end the war in Yemen. And that's how really we got the ceasefire because the Yemeni armed forces and the resistance to the Saudis, they, if you recall a few weeks ago, they hammered Saudi oil installations very badly. Yes. And this was when the war in Ukraine was just beginning. So the Americans don't want a volatile oil market for obvious reasons right now. And so they, they put a lot of pressure on the Saudis to accept the ceasefire. And the Saudis did as soon, literally days after they were hit hard by uh, drones and cruise missiles, they immediately they, they accepted the ceasefire. So I, I would imagine that Saudi Arabia, and I don't have inside information, but I would imagine the Saudis are upset about that because the Saudis have achieved nothing 
in uh, seven years of war and genocide and, and, and imposing hunger and bombing schools and hospitals and school buses. And uh, they, 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 they once bombed a funeral killing 1,000 people. Oh, my so, God. So, you know, so the Saudis who um, have achieved nothing and have suddenly been forced almost by the Americans to end the war, or at least to, to accept a ceasefire, I'm sure they're not happy. Again, I don't have insider information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is, is speculation, but I, I can't think of any other way of looking at it. So Saudi Arabia is unhappy. They were much more happy with Trump. Uh, they are unhappy with, with Biden for obvious reasons, the things that Biden said about uh, Mohammed bin Salman before the... Uh, uh, being elected as president. So it's a complicated situation. I think the Americans are sort of stuck because um, any escalation with Saudi Arabia can will only make things work, worse for the United States. And uh, capitulating to Mohammed bin Salman would be a huge humiliation for the, the administration in Washington. In a sense, it would be a further sign that the United States is no longer a power to be reckoned with as it was two, three decades ago. Um, let's talk for a minute about the um, JCPOA. Uh, in early March, it looked like there was going to be a deal. It really did. Russia objected to a couple of uh, provisions, though, and the U.S. never acted on a proposal to remove the uh, Revolutionary Guard from the U.S. terrorism watch list. Uh, and things just ground to a halt. Uh, this IRGC removal looked like it was going to happen. It's a paperwork exercise, frankly, and everybody knows that the terrorism list is political. Do you think that the that the whole uh, process is over, Mohammed? Is there no hope for an agreement? I don't know, but the the problem is not the IRGC being on the uh, foreign terrorist organization list. That's not the the issue. That is an issue. But the real issue, the real issues are linked to the sanctions themselves. Right. Uh, the United States is resisting uh, giving uh, assurances for foreign investors. So the Iranians have been saying, well, what if the U.S. pulls out again? What, what do foreign investors do? And the U.S. said, well, we can't assure anything. Because the next president, he may not accept. And, and the Iranians said, okay, well, how about your administration? And they said, well, mm -hmm. we can't give assurances for this either. So the Iranians said, well, then how are foreign investors going to come if just suddenly one morning Biden decides to leave? And so the Americans and the Iranians have a, have a problem here. And unless the Americans give a, an adequate solution, there's nothing that can be done because if foreign investors are – don't have feel assured that they that their um, potential investment is safe. They're not going to come to Iran, and that would be a violation mm -hmm. of the JCPOA. So mm -hmm. the Americans have to give a adequate uh, response to the Iranians. That that is it's clear that that is an, a, a reasonable expectation for the Iranian side. So here the Americans are stonewalling, and the second issue is the sanctions list. The, mm -hmm. A, a large number of entities are on the sanctions list. The Americans don't want to remove them. And the Iranians are saying, well, these sanctions are illegal. And these sanctions um, are a violation of the JCPOA. So these people have to be removed. 
And there are two ways of looking at this. One is that the people who helped bring in um, machinery for the food industry, machinery that the Americans call dual technology or for yes. producing vaccines, these people were put on sanctions. And so the Iranians have, a, have an obligation to protect these people. But also, even if these people say, well, it's okay, we'll sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the country, the problem is that if the Americans leave the deal again in future, and no one in Iran trusts that the Americans will stay, then if the Iranians need people to break the sanctions in future for the food industry or for vaccines mm -hmm. or for something else, then no one is going to help because they'll say, well, look, last time around when, when people before us got sanctioned, you just left them. Uh, uh, you, you didn't. Uh, protect them. You did nothing mm -hmm. for them. So it would be, it would be, it would harm Iran uh, significantly. So for the Iranians, the Americans have to resolve these issues for a deal to be accepted. And I think the Americans were moving there. We were, we were quite close. In fact, when I was in Vienna, yes. near the end, we were expecting the foreign ministers to come literally two or th in, in two or three days' time right. to just sign the deal. Exactly. But there were signs that, the, that in Washington things were getting complicated because of a couple of people in the American team left in protest. And uh, then we, when Robert Malley went to the Senate and Congress to, to um, give a report, um, it didn't go down well. And so the pressure built up further. And I think... Uh, Biden got cold feet. Mm -hmm. So the issue really isn't the IRGC. That is that is significant because it is it, it is the armed forces of Iran. But the key issues are uh, linked to the economy. And if the Iranian economy is not able to normalize, then there's no reason why Iran should sign a deal. If the U.S. doesn't re-enter the JCPOA, what does it mean for the rest of the signatories? European countries and Japan want to trade with Iran. They want to help rebuild the Iranian oil industry. They need Iranian oil, especially now in light of the, the Russia-Ukraine war. What happens with them? Is there any hope for a more robust um, economic or trade relationship? Well, you know, one thing that I, I, I'd like to re remind uh, your listeners is that the United States has been repeatedly saying that time is running out. Time is running out. The the technological development of the Iranian nuclear program is, you know, has, is moving forward way too fast. And after a certain date, or the, you know, they make a deadline and say after this date we can no longer negotiate. Right. Right. Well, that date has passed, and it's a couple of months, more than a couple of months mm -hmm. that it has passed, and nothing has happened. So the U.S. was lying about the nuclear program being a threat. If it was a threat, the, you know, they would have they would be screaming bloody murder right now as we speak. But you know, they just walked away and in silence. So if the nuclear if the Iranian uh, nuclear peaceful nuclear program was such an imminent threat, then why have they just moved on to other business? Sure. So so that shows A the hypocrisy, but B I think that it's yes, as time goes on, the United States is going to need Iran increasingly, is going to need Iran more than before. And so will U.S. allies, because the crisis in Ukraine is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. 
Of course, Iran is not going to tilt towards the United States or towards Europe. Iran, uh, while Iran doesn't accept the war, but Iran believes that uh, Iran from the very beginning has been saying what the Pope just said a couple of days ago, that that uh, NATO uh, pushed, you know, pushed uh, Europe towards this catastrophic situation by provoking Russia, by mm-hmm. supporting uh, neo-Nazis, by expanding NATO and lying to Russia, by uh, by carrying out a coup in Ukraine and all that. But the United States, if they want a more calm oil market, if they want more oil sold on the market, if they want stability in West Asia, then they can't simply uh, have uh, this uh, situation with Iran continue and expect no problem to arise as a result. So obviously, the, the, it makes sense for the Americans to sign a deal because it's in the interest of them and, and their allies. But um, Biden is weak and Biden seems to have cold feet. And as we move closer towards the midterm elections in the United States, I think the incentive for Biden to do what is the right thing for the United States will decrease. But simultaneously, the need for a deal because of the growing economic crisis that we're seeing uh, across the world, the need for a deal will increase. So which one will eventually uh, determine the fate of the U.S. policy, uh, determine the the fate of U.S. policy towards the nuclear deal, that remains to be seen. Mohammed, very quickly, one last question. Can you tell us a little bit about the current state of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, especially in light of reports that uh, that uh, Saudi Arabia is considering improving, at least unofficially, relations with Israel? Well, for Iran, the big issue has always been Yemen. Yes. And the genocide in Yemen. And that for Iran is something that is unacceptable and unforgivable. It is unforgivable. Mm-hmm. But the Iranians, for the sake of peace and stability, have always been saying that Iran is that they're willing to speak with the Saudis. It's been the Saudis that have refrained from speaking because they constantly wanted Iran to negotiate on behalf of Yemen. And the Iranians said they're not going to do that. The Saudis have to solve their problem with Yemen. Iran is willing to discuss bilateral relations. Mm-hmm. Now the Saudis are changing because they've lost the war in Yemen. There's a ceasefire now. The Saudis want, uh, they, the Saudis feel that the the, uh, the umbrella that the Americans provided for them, security umbrella, is no longer what it was. The Americans are no longer that capable. So they know that they have to deal with Iran in a different way. So there is a possibility for progress. The issue of Israel isn't all that important. Iran won't tolerate uh, a threat uh, on its nearest borders from the Israeli regime. But Israel is not a powerful country. Its its power is only linked to the amount of support it gets from Western countries. Um, The only power that Iran feels threatened by or has been in the past, but decreasingly so nowadays, is the United States. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. We're going to leave it there. Thank you for that great conversation, Dr. Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. 
We normally go to a break uh, at this uh, point. We only have a few more minutes, so we're not going to go to a break. But there are a couple of other little stories that before we leave, we wanted our listeners to uh, mm-hmm. to hear about. Yes. Uh, one is really sad, actually. Uh-oh. I don't know if I want to talk about it. Uh, it is the uh, it, the Smithsonian. Did you see this alert? Just recently, a yeah. A fox got into yeah. their flamingo enclosure and killed 25. Awful. 25 flamingos. That fox was having a feast. Can you imagine? 25 flamingos and one other um, bird. Now, I'm team fox anyway, right? The fox is just doing what it is in its nature to do. Um and, you know, being pushed out of its habitat. So they, it, they only had like 25 flamingos. They apparently right? had 74. Oh, that many? So okay. they had flamingos to spare. Also, would you like to know where the world's northernmost breeding colony of uh, flamingos hangs out in the summer? Yeah, I, I would. Kazakhstan. Really? Kazakhstan is this whole, in, in the north of the country, this whole huge like wetland marshy area. And it's not and too flamingos cold. come there in the summer. They fly all the way up from Africa. I'm pretty sure, and hang out there and leave their kids in little like flamingo p- kindergartens where like uh, flamingo chicks will be left in the care of some adults while other adults go out and get food. It's wow. all very fascinating and beautiful and cool. You know, the yeah. only time in my life I ever saw a hoopo, I saw a big adult hoopo. It landed on my front porch in uh, Bahrain mm-hmm. and I mentioned it to one of the guys in the embassy and he said, oh, those hoopos all come from Kazakhstan. They're on their way to Africa for mm-hmm. the uh, for the winter. And uh, it landed right on my front porch. Also, if you ever want to see an animal that does not look like it belongs on this planet, uh, check out the saiga. I've never heard of it. It's a ungluate. It's a hoofed animal that's sort of like an antelope, but it has a nose that's like a lopped off elephant's trunk. It is right. cool as hell. It is a it is a cool animal, and it was the name of, of my trivia team when I lived there. Speaking of, <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is cool as hell or not. I'm going to go with probably. Uh, this is very interesting news. I'm going to say it's cool because it is a rival company to Elon Musk's Neuralink Corp. Uh, Synchron Inc. Okay. Uh, has put its brain computer interface into human trials. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it's enrolled the first patient in its American clinical trial, putting the company's implant on a path toward possible regulatory approval for wider use in people with paralysis. And I mean, this stuff would be absolutely incredible for people who who are paralyzed. Right. So I I think that, you know, if if you can manage it and you can do it, it, it safely and with the right you know, oversight and and curbs on it. Like this could be just an incredible medical breakthrough for people. I simply do not trust Elon Musk's no. companies no. to do that. Agreed. Uh, given how their cars like to trap people inside them and burn them to death. But, I, yes. you know, other other than that seems pretty neat. And so, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I, like I also just idea. wanted to say um, that uh I've I've figured out why Hillary Clinton thought her dress was so particularly evocative yesterday. I was looking at some pictures from the, the, of the dress. Gal. So, yeah, you just wore that maroon dress and yeah. she was like, here's who. OK, so in, in maroon thread, she had the actual names of all of these women embroidered around the edge of the dress. So it's like, OK. Like, that really like Hosni Mubarak's them? suits, the thread used to spell out Hosni Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak. So the, from a distance, it looks <laughs> like pinstripes and, 
in close up, it actually spells out his name. Wow, that's the that's my favorite thing about Hosni Mubarak. It's <laughs> the only thing I approve of. Yeah. So okay, Hillary Clinton, your maroon dress, I suppose, did evoke all of those women because you had their names just printed on there. Pretty easy. Also, uh, John, little shout out to Washington D.C. Yes, and Arlington, did- Virginia. Which is number three. Number three, yeah. Washington, D.C. Uh, rated number one in the U.S. for city park systems. Yes. Deservedly so. so. We do have a great... Rock Creek yeah. Park, man. Rock Amazing. Creek Park is just such an incredible resource. It, I, yeah, I, I live near a, it. I, I run it all the time. I went on a hike with a group of, uh, of diplomats mm-hmm. in Rock Creek Park, got 22,000 steps, um, came out in some part of the city I've never even been to before. I've been here for 40 years in August. Mm-hmm. and. Never saw anybody else on the hike. You might as well have been in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. It's incredible. I also just want to take one second to exacerbate regional tensions and point out St. Paul, Minnesota, number two, Minneapolis, number five. What's that? (laughs) That, I love that. Take that, Minneapolis. Who's number one in Minnesota? St. Paul. All right. That's all we have time for. I just had to rub that that wound a tiny bit. Uh, Thanks to all of our guests and our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.